Um, thank you very much for that warm welcome this afternoon. And uh, I, I know that you recognise the level of esteemedness um, that, you, that we're in this afternoon, the company that we're keeping for our second to last Planet Talks here at WOMAD. 2015. My name's Bernie Hobson from the ABC Science Unit and as always it's an absolute delight to be associated with these talks where we really get to hear from some people who are deeply involved um, in the subject area and make sure that you're getting access to them as well. So we'll be having quite a private, you know, in-club kind of conversation up here for half an hour or so, but then we're throwing to you and we really want your questions and there's never enough time, so please make sure you call for the microphone as soon as uh, you get a chance. Um, this afternoon's session is uh, being recorded for broadcast on Big Ideas on Radio National. It's also being recorded for RIOS TV Science Channel. It's called Repairing the Blue Heart of our planet and uh, the superstars of marine science who, uh, who we've got gathered here this afternoon are covering every angle of oceanography and, and marine biology that we could imagine. So um, starting with uh, her deepness herself, uh, the Sturgeon General, I mean, <laughs> Monica's just don't get any better than that. Um, Sylvia Earle is a legend to anyone who knows anything about marine science, who knows anything about the reporting on the state of our oceans uh, since probably longer than she'd like me to reveal, but yeah, no, uh, for quite some time now. Started off as one of the aquanauts. That's when uh, you got notoriety in the 70s after spending two weeks on the ocean floor with a bunch of female, other female um, marine scientists and uh, coming out to a ticker tape parade and, and from then it's, you know, uh, director of, um, of the NOAA and uh, also um, currently the oxymoronic title of Explorer in Residence. Explorer in residence at National Geographic, but she wears, wears the oxymoronism well, I think. So join me in welcoming <laughs> Sylvia Earle. Uh, along in the second couch there, the economy couch, uh, <laughs> um, we've got... First class, okay. Well, you know, I was, I was just talking myself up there. Uh, <laughs> um, nearest to me, we've got Professor Bronwyn Galandas from University of Adelaide. And Bronwyn's a marine biologist as well, very much across what's happening in the temperate oceans, in particular in the local area and in uh, Spencer Gulf. So she's going to be giving us a very local picture of the oceans this afternoon. So join me in welcoming Bronwyn. <laughs> She's certainly no um, no deepness or no um, no uh, sturgeon general, but I think she, to her own you know close companions, she is the queen of the cuttlefish, and we might hear why a little bit later on. Um, and at the far end uh, of that second couch is Charlie Verin. Um, Charlie's. That's not his real name. His real name's John Verin, but at a young age he was christened Charlie because of his great similarity to that other Charles in biology, Mr Darwin himself. So he's always gone by Charlie since then and has had the life of explorer, biologist and, and done some pretty impressive work in understanding evolution in corals. He's, um, he has a great nickname as well, the, um, the coral godfather. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not sure, I don't want to go into the details of that. Godfather stories usually end up with some kind of head in some kind of bed that's not very pretty. Uh, so we'll probably just leave that one where it is. And, and because we're looking this afternoon, I'm 
we're here because we're interested in the environment, but in particular, we're interested in the ocean. And I think everyone, every human, and I don't know if it's because we're so much salt water, every human feels some link, some connection, some compassion with oceans, but marine biologists just take that to another level. There's something a little bit peculiar about them and the love that they have for the big blue. So what I'd like each of you to do, considering that you do represent, I guess, different aspects of the ocean and of the scope of the ocean, before we, before we get started, or right, to start us off, really give us a bit of a picture, a bit of a report card on how your specialty area of the ocean is going. Now, I think we'll come to you last, Sylvia, because you, your specialty area of the ocean is the oceans. So um, that's pretty all-encompassing. But let's start. Charlie, you are coral man. There's a lot... Everyone is aware of what's being done to our reefs at the moment and, and what they've suffered over the last, you know, couple of decades in generalities. But you've studied the Great Barrier Reef, other reefs around the world for 50 years. Can you tell us, Charlie, what is going on? What's the state of our reefs? What's causing it? And, and really how that makes you feel? Okay, this thing works? Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I've been diving for 50 years. That's um, why I'm going a little grey. Um, people ask me, um, am I still diving? And I say, yeah, I've got one of those new underwater wheelchairs. Um, but uh, I have worked on uh, all the major coral reefs of the world, almost. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been, from that point of view, a great job. But uh, I have to say it's not been a great job for the last 10 or 15 years because over and over again, I go back to um, places, Red Sea, wherever. I mean, uh, I go back to places that I've, I've studied and know in great detail. And I go back to places I can hardly recognise. Um, so uh, it's very well known now that coral reefs are going uh, downhill very quickly. And the, uh, the prognosis is, is, is pretty grim. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, once I had the most fabulous job, but uh, that's turned into a uh, not-so-fabulous job. It's like watching a house burning down in slow motion. But um, the main thing that worries me about uh, the fate of coral reefs is the, the action of carbon dioxide, uh, about climate change, and it affects coral reefs because coral reefs are carbonate platforms at the surface of the ocean. And if you're made of a carbonate and you're at the surface of the ocean, you're in big trouble. And corals are very much in big trouble now because the amount of carbon dioxide we are putting into the atmosphere, which is no precedent in geological history, is um, changing the surface chemistry of the ocean to such an extent that uh, by mid-century, it would be hard for corals to build skeletons at all. And by the end of the That's century... That's within 35 years. Yep. Uh, it's already started. And by the end of the century, corals will not be able to build skeletons. Now, this has happened before. And it's happened roughly 30 times before in the history of the Earth. Um, because corals and coral reefs have been around for almost the entire time of complex life on this earth. But when the ocean chemistry changes, then, then corals cop it first. And so corals are, I hate to use the term, but I've done it in, in a book of mine, the canary in the coal mine. 
they are the first indicators of something going seriously wrong with the planet. And that is really not so surprising because it's not just about corals not making it. Coral reefs are home for about a third of all the ocean species at some stage in their life cycle. So when coral reefs go down, they take with them about a third of all other species. And from that, there's a domino effect. And when that domino effect really starts rolling, the oceans become decimated, and that is what we call a mass extinction. There's been five mass extinctions on this planet. Four of them can only be explained by ocean acidification. Now, what we are doing now has got no precedent in, geo in, in geology. The levels of carbon dioxide certainly have, but the speed at which we are increasing the levels of carbon dioxide has no precedent. And what we are doing is changing the chemistry of the ocean surface uh, outside the bounds that a coral is designed to tolerate. And so corals are failing, uh, firstly, uh, to uh, they get oxygen poisoning because the the algae in their tissues is, uh, are generating too much, carbon, uh, uh, too much oxygen and that oxygen is actually killing the corals and that's what we call mass bleaching. And mass bleaching is now accounting for uh, the death of a very large proportion of corals in the world. So is the bleaching, I thought the bleaching was down to, um, to water temperature increases but it's... That's it's is, is got to be a combination of temperature and light. Right. Now, if we've got enough light, and most shallow water corals do, then it's temperature. Mm. And uh, what, what is happening now is the surface waters are, are reaching unprecedented heights. And that is triggering off mass bleaching. Now, um, this is happening all around the world, in all the places of the world. I don't know of any place now that is not suffering from recurrent mass bleaching. And this is happening because corals are no longer designed to tolerate uh, the amount of oxygen being produced by the algae in their mm. tissues. Charlie, can I just... You, we're talking about losing... I mean, that is just a gobsmacking statistic, losing one-third of sea life virtually um, by mid-century. Now, you know, we, we get predictions of, um, of progression of climate change according to different scenarios. What scenario is that one-third? Is that, like, way out if it's worst possible case or is that business-as-usual kind of case? Uh, the... Um there's no business as usual now. We're completely in uncharted waters because what is happening now has never happened on the earth before. Um, the amount of carbon dioxide we, we are producing has not been produced by volcanoes, has not been produced by any natural thing on this planet. Now, there's one exception to that, and that is the very, very famous bolide that's an asteroid that hit round about the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, at, it's called the KT mass extinction and that killed off the last of the dinosaurs, and it killed off every marine reptile on the Earth, except for the good old turtle. The good old turtle survived, and they got through it. But it wiped out an awful lot of marine life. It went close to wiping out all corals. Uh, and before that, at the greatest of all mass extinctions, all corals were wiped out. Every coral went extinct. And that means that the corals we have today have completely 
are a new, a completely different group of organisms that have evolved since then. But the first, at a mass extinction, what happens is... Um, uh, Charlie, I can feel another happy story coming yeah. on, so I might just... Um, um, I think yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I hate telling this story. I really do. Yeah, it must be it's, breaking... Breaking your heart, and and, well, it it must be. But I think um, I'm not sure how much more the room can bear at this stage. Um, Okay, it it is reality, and we will, you know, we'll examine it. But let's see if we can um, find a a slightly uh, happier story, perhaps Uh, in um, in uh, in Bronwyn's area of the ocean. I mean, it's it's looking extremely dire for um, for for reefs, not just our Great Barrier Reef, but the 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 key reefs in Indonesia as well. Um, Bronwyn. Let's hope the cuttlefish and others are faring a bit better. What's the situation here in, in temperate waters, which, you know, uh, coral reefs are pretty special. They're, they're very special, but they're only a part of the ocean. Is the rest of the ocean in so much trouble? What about your patch, Bronwyn? Well, I would like to think it's not quite that dire, but there's certainly some dire stories around. Um, I'm really looking forward to when I've been diving 50 years. It's not quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> But we were over in um, northern New Zealand just the other week looking at some of their um, underwater vents that are similar to the uh, where you've got the low CO2 and you can start to see what the effects of climate change might actually be. Um, But if we come back closer to home here, we've got um, seagrass beds off this coast that are pretty amazing um, beds that... Uh, stabilise the coastline that have a whole range of organisms and things. We all know that they're declining somewhat. Um, I think uh, in this region we've also got um, significant development occurring. So if we move across to Spencer Gulf, that's been highlighted as um, one of the economic development regions of South Australia. So we've got um, mining companies coming in, perhaps not at the same level as what we thought a few years ago when there was going to be, um, before the global financial crisis and the um, reduction in funds available for some of that. Yeah, the GFC was a great boon for the environment. It was very... (laughs) I think it gives us an an ideal opportunity to get things right in a region where there could be substantial development into the future. So if we've got lots of mining coming in with um, significant port developments, a lot of shipping, um, all of that trying to be there alongside your marine parks, alongside your fisheries and aquaculture... I think what um, what the uh, the global financial crisis has done is it give us a chance to get things right from the beginning, so that we don't have to go down a costly restoration pathway like we're seeing in other parts of the world. So places like Chesapeake Bay, for instance. Um, restoration is generally significantly more expensive than thinking about management and how we might develop the region up front. And so I really think that's um, what South Australia's got a chance to be leading the world in an integrated approach to marine management. We are seeing some of that happening in other places, but um, Spencer Gulf in particular offers us that unique opportunity. And, Bronwyn, you were talking about the seabed suffering a bit. Is that from temperature, acidification, runoff? What's Well, here you'll all be familiar with the um, decline of seagrass, which has tended to be um, 
from deeper waters in. So basically it's what we've got happening here is related to the, the runoff and things, whereas in other parts of the country you see it the reverse way around happening. So we've got something slightly different happening in different regions. And while, um, you know, you're a marine biologist who loves your job and obviously uh, Charlie's got the, um, the, the Nemo factor, the, the reef just being that iconic thing that everyone thinks of when they, when they think of the beauty of the oceans. I mean, Sylvia, aquanaut, hello. Uh, <laughs> what have you got for us, Bronwyn? Have you got some charismatic creatures We've down in the local... We've got the rock stars of the sea. <laughs> like those pulsating organisms that you see over at Point Lowly, the giant Australian cuttlefish. They get the name rock stars of the sea because they grow fast and die young. So <laughs> essentially, they live 12 to 18 months. They can grow up to a metre in length, much bigger on the east coast of Australia, where we've got individuals that have been up to 16 kilos. But think about that, 16 kilos in a year to 18 months. Um, and they've got a bit of a rock and roll lifestyle with the lady cuttlefish, if I recall. They certainly do. Um, they aggregate each winter, I'm sure everybody's aware of that, um, along this little stretch of coastline in northern Spencer Gulf. Um, there, when they're on that breeding aggregation, the males outnumber the females by about four to one. So what that means we could learn is so that much. females have <laughs> lots of choice and males have really got to develop some sneaky sort of strategies for mating. So we get males impersonating females to sneak matings. It really is quite spectacular. And it's all happening on your back doorstep in relatively shallow water. So you could put on a pair of waders and a viewing platform and just stroll on out and see them. So it's open to everybody. You but don't maybe have they to would like dive. some privacy, Bronwyn. It's <laughs> they completely ignore you. <laughs> but they really do. They just completely ignore you, go about their business while you're watching them. It's fascinating. Yeah. Well, so I think the picture is not as dire for the, for the temperate waters from what you're saying, Bronwyn. I'm not sure how you feel about that, Sylvia, with your, you know, whole of globe, ocean view here. But um, you're, you've just written another book, Blue Hope. I mean, I know that you've got some hope for our oceans. Talk us through what are your concerns at the moment, how the ocean's faring as a whole, and I guess reflect on some of what Charlie and Bronwyn have said. Well, with us or without us, the ocean, the planet will go on. <laughs> but as a human being, I like being a human being, I would like to see a prosperous future for us. That means we have to take care of the systems that maintain the world more or less the way it operates now. It's taken all preceding history <laughs> to, to develop a planet that works in our favor with about 20% oxygen in the atmosphere, 80% nitrogen, with just enough carbon dioxide to drive photosynthesis. It generates oxygen, takes up carbon, and holds the planet steady. It, it requires respect for us, respect for nature of the, the natural systems to maintain Earth in all of the universe the only place where we can just 
wake up in the morning, step outside and breathe. <laughs> you can't do that on Mars or the moon or any other place that we know about. This is it. And here's the thing. I, I'm with Charlie. We're in trouble. Um, and I'm with Bronwyn. There's cause for hope. I think that never before has there been a better time to, to, to be around, to make a difference for the future. Because at this point, we are the beneficiaries, not just of all of the natural systems that have developed a planet that works in our favor, but we're the beneficiaries of all of human civilization that has gone before. So kids today walk around with things in their pocket that where the grown-ups can do this too, of course, and access knowledge, more knowledge than, than, you think about the great heroes of the past. Charles Darwin did not have access to what kids now can, can find. The, uh, Aristotle, um, what, Einstein could not know because he did not have the benefit of satellites up in the sky, looking and measuring, able to document the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, to show the melting of polar ice, to, pre to acquire the evidence of how, what humans are doing to the natural world and what the consequences are back to us. Today, we're still suffering from profound complacency, despite what we now know about the nature of the world and how it's changing. And that is one change that has to happen if we are to have a civilization that works. We have to take seriously the evidence that is right there for anyone to access. You know, we're not making this up. In fact, the, the, the access to knowledge, anyone can do what a scientist does, to observe carefully and report honestly information that's out there, and then to act on that knowledge. That's what scientists do. Observe carefully, report honestly, and then act accordingly based on the evidence that you acquire. And so that's cause for hope. The evidence is there. What's driving us crazy, <laughs> what has me wanting to you know, go down the street waving my arms saying, did you know, have you, haven't you looked, don't you understand that we have a chance, but the time is slipping away fast to take action to secure an enduring place for humankind within the natural, mostly blue systems that maintain our lives. So what do you care about? The economy, your health, security, life itself, all things anchor back to taking care of the natural systems. And we didn't take seriously, not as seriously as we should until right about now the importance of whatever it is that makes breathing possible, <laughs> that makes, I don't know, you know, all the things that, that collectively hold the planet together in a way that favors us. We thought, when I was a kid, when I began diving in the 50s, like Charlie, <laughs> that, that, that we could alter the nature of nature. We thought the ocean was too big to fail. 
we thought we could put anything in the atmosphere we wanted to, it would simply go away. Huh, but there is no away. That's the big wake-up call. So, while there are, as Charlie has suggested, processes that are in motion that appear to be unstoppable. You know, we've, we've already gone, in some ways, past the point of no return. That no matter what we do, the world is changing. However, there are things that we can do to soften the blow, to, to actually give nature a break. The best thing that we could do right now is to take the pressure off the systems that are working. If you think of the planet as this big, healthy, functioning, living machine, the last thing we want to do is, is disrupt the way it works. The last thing you want to do is to take out pieces that, that make the planet work in our favor. The last thing you want to do is acidify the ocean that not only has a negative effect on creatures with calcium carbonate as a basic part of their biology, but acidifying the ocean can have an effect on all forms of life one way or the other. <laughs> if you ever had to take care of, a, of an aquarium, a fish tank, you have to watch the pH, you know? Or if you don't, the fish die if it gets too far one way or the other. And what we're seeing is our life support system, the blue part of the planet that dominates our things that keep us alive. Well, you know, it's in trouble. So we're in trouble. So, so. Sylvia, you've made it, uh, you know, you've backed up Charlie's I case have. from the science that, um, that it is in the acidification from the excessive amounts of CO2 are Probably and, and the, the warming, key, the and the key warming trend. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, both from the same cause. Yeah. And, um, the, and and the depletion of the diversity of life. Yeah. I, I we're witnesses, right? And because of, and, and you're a witness to change. Ten-year-olds are a witness to change. All of us, we've seen change in the last little piece of time that is unprecedented in the history of humankind, unprecedented as far as we know in the history of the planet. But the great news is now we know. Mm. And, you know, toss a, a uh, <laughs> what, a, a compliment, if you will, or, or something to fossil fuels because they have given us knowledge. They've given us some pretty serious problems to deal with coal is number one in terms of delivering problems. It's not just the excess carbon dioxide, but it's also soot that is darkening the Arctic ice, causing an acceleration of melting, which has an effect on sea level rise, which, you know, all these things linked together. Oil, gas. But without those fossil fuels in the last half century to power our way to the skies above and look back on ourselves to see in ways that we could not see before the present time who we are, where we've come from, where we might be going, and maybe, most of all, how can we get from where we are to a more secure place than will be possible unless we listen up. You know, the most important thing that we've learned from 
burning fossil fuels, a communication system, improved health, improved agriculture, so many gifts that fossil fuels have, have delivered to civilization. But the most important thing is knowing we have to change our ways. And the good news is we have alternatives. And now we know this. What's holding us back from doing everything we can, full speed ahead, to looking for alternatives now that we know what the problem is? We couldn't know this 50 years ago, but now we know. That's power. That's hope. Let's get with it. Obvious things that needs to be done, but we have to stop killing the ocean by deliberately, industrially extracting wildlife from the sea. The justification for this is often given in terms of food security. What are seven billion people going to eat if they can't eat fish and shrimp and lobsters and oysters and clams and all the other things we take from the sea? Well, huh, never before have we had the capacity to extract at the scale that we have been imposing in the last 50 years because we didn't have the technology to get out there, down there, into the deep sea. It baffles me that news that just came a few days ago that th this large fishing vessel will be deployed from Tasmania, the huge trawler to in industri industrially extract wildlife. You know, this is not like 10,000 years ago when people were required to take from the wild to feed their families, their communities, and that gradually led to prosperity, led to agriculture. Imagine trying to feed seven billion people with songbirds and other wildlife. We have to, and it's not an endorsement of agriculture across the board, we have to be wiser, smarter about how we grow things to eat, but eating wildlife accounts for a very small part of what powers calories for humans. But it's a really important part that we extract from the ocean, 90% of things like the sharks, the swordfish, the tunas, the grouper, the snapper, in just a few decades? I mean, if you just take that and extrapolate from where we've been to where we are to where we will be in another decade or two, you know, that's not food security. That's undermining planetary security yeah. on, you know, come on. That's not happy clapping, that's um, agreement with concern. Sylvia, you were meant to introduce some hope there. Um, I, I can't say, you mean you, I said, you said the words, but I'm, I'm a little bit concerned there. But I do want to go back to Charlie, and who's looking very downcast. I mean, the love of your life, the coral reefs, are in a, uh, a very dire state. Charlie, there's a lot of us, a lot of people here, I'm sure, concerned about the future of coral reefs because of their their nurturing capacity, their role for life in the seas. Should we, considering we have limited resources, should we bother? Should we give up on the reefs? If they're, that, if they're gonna go anyway, should we just cut our losses with the reefs and focus on other parts we can do something about? That's a good question. Uh, reefs are so much under the gun. Can we just say, well, they're a write-off and, um, and leave it at that? Um, and that's... That's happened to some research grant applications I've written. Why bother now? Well, if you're going to write off reefs, then you're going to have to write off a third of marine life that uses reefs, and that's going to just create the sixth world mass extinction event, because that's the sequence it'll take. Mm. 
So it's incredibly serious. Um, it's not just corals that are, that are in the, staring down the barrel of a big gun. It's, it's the, the whole ecosystem which we call coral reefs. It's the big ecosystem. And if they fail, well, the geological record is very clear on this. Coral reefs are the, the custodians of history. We know more about the history of, the, of this planet from coral reefs than everything else combined. And what that history says is coral reefs are the first to, to go down the tube, and if they do, so much else will follow. Mm. So it's very, very serious. And it has been taken seriously by some countries, some groups of people, it's been, but it is being largely ignored by too many people in mm. too many ways. Mm. Okay, so that's definitely not an option, um, just getting that clear right now. Uh, um, I guess the thing we want to look at is what are the other options? So we've, we've been looking at, um, clearly we need to do something about the wholesale fishing. We need to do something about um, the, the levels of CO2. Those are all very well known. Sylvia, you've got a particular project, Mission Blue, that you're pinning a lot in, a, a lot on for, for really a last-ditch effort to try and get some attention and, and some action in this area. Tell us about Mission Blue and what you hope for it and where you're at with it now. Well, the concept is fairly straightforward. It's to protect what remains of the great systems that are functioning and restore what you can of those that are in trouble. In my backyard in Washington, D.C. is the Chesapeake Bay. It's seriously declined in the last 400 years, and the record there is pretty clear. Uh, the decline of oysters just in the last 100 years down to 1% of what they were. We, we love to eat them. Huh. They taste so good, but we have failed to appreciate them for the other values as, as part of the filtration system for that, that part of the world, or clams and, and the crabs, all these things are part of the system that, that if restored, if we just give them a break, we'll see some improvement. How much of a and break would we need to give them? <laughs> we just stop killing them. <laughs> You know, we did that with whales, mm. almost, starting in 1986. Um, and there has been, you know, cause for hope. There, not all species are recovering, but, but there's a trend toward recovery. Now, we should do everything we can to protect those systems that are in reasonably good shape. The National Geographic has a project called Pristine Seas, headed by one of my fellow explorers in residence, Enrique Sala. He's trying to identify places, and many of them are coral reefs. Um, and there are about 20 of them that have been identified so far, and then to work with governments to try to really put in place legal mechanisms to take the pressure off, really fully protect them from the harm that we impose. Now, you can't really protect any part of the planet from the effects of excess carbon dioxide. That's comprehensive. You cannot protect any part of the ocean from the increasing acidification. Some areas are affected more than others, but it's comprehensive. It's what we're putting into the ocean, what we're taking out of the ocean, generally, that we have to address that and think what can we individually and collectively do about it. Well, you can stop eating tuna, for example, 
why is anybody at this point in history with their numbers down to 10% or maybe it's only 20% for some species, but now that you know that, how can you, how can you justify a luxury taste? It's not about you know, that you have to, it's a matter of choice. So let's choose to give them a break. And, you know, oh. yeah. we, we uh, in this country, 2012, under the leadership of your environment minister, Tony Burke, and the work of many people over 10 years came to a plan for protecting one third of Australia's exclusive economic zone as a park, half of it fully protected, much like the move or the gradual increase in the amount of the Great Barrier Reef, that as evidence came in that 3% wasn't working, 6%, well, still not really doing the job, 33%, still probably not enough, but it's better than 3%. Mm. And to have an understanding of the benefits of protection, it doesn't mean that you, you aren't getting some benefits by protecting these areas and, and not taking the fish, not using them as dump sites, protecting them from the runoff from agriculture and so on. You are receiving benefits through protection. You're not just, the economy of, that is reliant on a healthy Great Barrier Reef, just think about the people such as I who pay big bucks for the privilege of coming just to be there in the presence of systems that are in your backyard. So eco economic benefits, the health benefits, uh, an unhealthy ocean is not healthy for us either. We benefit from um, conditions on the land and in the sea of natural systems that are working in our favor. But truly, the most important thing that we extract from any natural system, but particularly the ocean, is our existence. It's our existence. Our lives depend on taking care mm. of nature, land and sea. And on the land, it, it took us until early in the 20th century to understand the importance of embracing places on the land, or they were going to be lost and they'd be lost forever. We didn't, 100 years ago, appreciate the other things that, such as Charlie and we're talking about here that how it affects our, our very existence but now we know and protecting the ocean is a relatively new idea uh, we can we can do this starting in 1975 here in australia leading the way and now around the world uh, mission blue is looking to help encourage people at least 20 percent by 2020 i mean that's not enough. Is it 20% marine parks globally? Yes, of course. Mm. And if you think about half the world beyond national jurisdiction, the high seas, in a stroke, actions could be taken to take the pressure off the dumping in the high seas, the extraction of fish from the high seas beyond the 200-mile limit could at least be a step in the right direction. The United Nations, just early this year, took action to make it possible to consider governance in the high seas to protect the diversity of life there. That's unprecedented and plenty of reason for hope. But we have to hurry. Come on, listen to Charlie. He's right, you know? The clock is ticking. Things are in motion. Just hold up the mirror 
every one of you, think about what can you do? What's, what's your power? Can you write? Do you sing? Do you have a way with numbers? Do you have a business? Are you a teacher or your mom or your dad or are you a kid? I don't care who you are. <laughs> you have something that you can do. And some have big things, some have small things, but every bit counts. And now's the time, the sooner the better. Oh, listen to what it takes to make a cephalopod. <laughs> and then look at them with new respect and celebrate the fact that right here in your backyard, you have a phenomenon that is unique in the world. And take care of it. Let the world know what it is that's going on right here. Thank with an expert who can <laughs> give, give you the straight scoop. Thank God for sexy squid. It's uh, <laughs> Well, I'm really glad that you brought us to that um, because the knowledge and compassion are empowering and, and I guess it is going to come down to all of us individually. There's nothing new in any of that, but we here all know that. But I'm, I'm really glad that you brought us to a point where we've, we've got some agency to act because I have to say this has been the most funereal um, panel discussion. I have. It feels like we're mourning the death of the ocean before time, having a little rehearsal eulogy. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that we can at least uh, in, inject, you know, some some sense of what we can do individually. We, you know, we can do make things better than they otherwise would be mm. if we just let current processes go the way they've been going. Yeah, we can. We can. We've seen cause for hope when we stop killing whales, mm. and we and when you have an area that's protected, you do see improvement. There are more fish, there are greater diversity. There's a, just a healthier system. That means hope for the ocean, but it, that means hope for us. Thanks, Sylvia. And it's now over to you for your questions. We've probably got time for about six questions. So if you can just get your hand up really quickly. One there, one there, one there, one there, one there, one there. <laughs> That's six. <laughs> and one down the back. Okay. It's fantastic to hear you all speak today. We've We've got a, a major threat coming to the coastlines in South Australia. Uh, big oil, beat led by BP, are coming into the Great Australian Bight, one of the most significant whale nurseries in the world. Um, they're looking to start their exploration drilling early next year, which is obviously is when it all went wrong in the Gulf of Mexico, decimated a huge area. I'd be interested in your views in terms of what we should be saying to our decision makers, what we, we should be expecting of our decision makers in terms of, I suppose, the pretty average history of these companies, but also the fact that we simply can't, at this point in history, allow another fossil fuel basin to be opened up. We've heard so much about what's happening climatically in terms of the destruction of, of both terrestrial and marine environments. So I'd be interested in your views about that. Um, Bronwyn, can I go to you on that one because it is your backyard? Sure, and I think Besides BP, there's a whole lot of other leases out there. I think it's really important that we have a baseline understanding of, of what's actually there and what we know about that system before we do too much drilling at all. Um, and that's more an insurance policy for us as a um, marine community, us as a community, so, th so that we can see what we've potentially got and have a much greater understanding. Unfortunately, I'm not convinced that the government is going to overlook the large dollars that would come through and the potential jobs 
that would be created through some of those um, ventures and that that's possibly um, what's, what's going to drive some of their decisions. Unfortunately, I don't think there's enough um, people in the marine that have a marine conservation focus about not um, undertaking such activities and really that's what the government's um, looking at. They're looking at um, they're looking at what's best in terms of the economy, and at least that's my perspective on it. And that that's what's going to drive them. Roman, surely someone's doing the sums on. You were saying how expensive it is to um, to return a, a state to its an environment to its original state. Surely someone's looked at the cost of um, the damage being done. Um, there's certainly cost-benefit studies being undertaken. Um, BP's actually funding a large um, multi-million dollar project out there so that we have a much better understanding of that system. And as part of that, I believe that there will be cost-benefit um, studies undertaken. Mm. But that may be more focused on the community benefit. That's what um, I mean, like the cost yeah. of the damage. That's exactly. Uh, the cost of the damage is, is the key thing. Okay, yeah, just a final quick... Yeah, okay. Thank you. And yes? Hi, I'd just like to... The recreational fishermen, you know, do we actually know how much they're taking out of the ocean as well? Like, you know, that difference between what we eat and what's caught and what's wasted in that... Well, I'm the wrong person to ask about recreational fishing <laughs> because... I mean, there are numbers of evidence in places like the Florida Keys where the impact of sport fishing is thought to be at least as great as the commercial fishing. Um, even though, you know, you say it's just one boat, one guy, one family, whatever, and it's for fun. And whereas the larger scale commercial extraction is is obviously a huge bite from the sea, but I, I personally, while I do appreciate the long history of people going out to be close to nature and on the water and the, the, the lure of what are we going to catch? You just throw something over the side and anything could happen. It's like a treasure hunt. But I just fail to see the joy of killing that people derive from catching fish for fun. <laughs> the sport of killing. I don't get it. I really, it's now killing something to eat, again, and if it's a necessity, I can't, can't fault that. But again, um, I think that they, we need to rethink what fish are all about. If you only know fish from dead animals, I mean, if, imagine if aliens only knew humans. As, as dead bodies. They'd know nothing about anything that we value about ourselves, our music, our art, our humor, or whatever it is. They're just pieces of meat to aliens. Well, we're aliens to the fish, if you will. And we just see them as pieces of meat. Well, some of us have gotten to see them as critical components 
of what makes the planet function, like birds. And Bronwyn, you're yeah. the former president of the Australian uh, Fish Ecology um, uh, Society, Fish Biology Society, so I think maybe you are the right person to, to ask about this. So certainly here in Australia, there are some species that are taken in greater quantities by recreational um, fishers than commercial fishers. But um, the other thing, particularly in South Australia, is our commercial guys pay, um, pay levies, etc. Our recreational fishers can go out there with no licence whatsoever in marine waters and that's probably why we have less of an understanding of, the, um, of how much they actually take out. So we've, we've done some surveys in the past of, of the recreational fishing and how much it takes but that only tends to happen every four or five years. If we had a licence here in South Australia we might be able to do that much more regularly and have a much better understanding of, of exactly what's being extracted by recreational fishers. But, but could I just add yep. that, that there's another way to look at fish and we have to think about that. I mean, wildlife generally in the ocean, including your beloved cuttlefish. You know, I've seen cuttlefish in the Tokyo fish market. It just breaks my heart because I know what they're like and I value them as important components of the... They're not just pieces of meat. <laughs> and the, there's a new wave of research describing the value of fish and other marine life, krill in Antarctica, even the, the phytoplankton, right down to the bottom of the food chains, carbon-based units. They, you know, it's sequestering carbon. We, we give carbon credits for not cutting trees. We need mm. to think about other values for fish by keeping them safely in the sea. We're not exposing them and releasing them as carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We're helping the process of maintaining, holding the planet steady. There's a relationship between so-called blue carbon and climate change. We haven't really put that on the balance sheet until right about now. There are other ways to look at fish as a diver. I mean, there, there are the gazillions of dollars that bird watchers spend just for the joy of doing a life list of how many different kinds of birds can we check off. Well, with fish, there are at least 25,000 options to check off your life list. And you can spend billions there, too, getting out to where the action is and help the economy instead of just killing them. So when the... Um When the European settlers first came to South Australia, they used to shoot the birds as well. So right. they shot the cormorants and, and yeah, the like. Right. Um, so we've moved past that. Perhaps we can move past fishing as well. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Let's go. Yep. I'm intrigued on... I'm probably directed to Charlie about the Great Barrier Reef because I've never been to the Great Barrier Reef. would like to. And I'm wondering, uh, are there good options for all the people who don't get to do what you guys have obviously done and you've seen the beauty and the joy and the value, is there a sort of virtual tourism movement where we can get people oh, who yes. can't get there in reality to, to get there in virtual reality as we have a technological society? We've all got our videos and phones and what's been done to let people who aren't able to dive get into the water and see the beauty and appreciate the vulnerability? Well, I'd say one thing we ought to be doing is, is encouraging uh, Reef Aquaria. That's, that, that's had spectacular success in other countries. For some reason, Australia is way behind in, in reef aquaria, and I, and I think that's very odd. Um, but um, 
seeing uh, a coral reef on a, on a screen um, is not to my way of thinking a very uh, rewarding thing to do. Um, but it is true that coral reefs are a bit out of sight, out of mind, and to most people, they're dangerous places, hard to get to, expensive. Um, but they are sort of the mecca of the oceans. And it's really important that we take into account uh, what is happening to coral reefs. For example, you can go anywhere in, in Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, anywhere in the Coral Triangle, and you won't see a shark. I haven't seen a shark there. I've been diving there a lot in the past 15 years. I haven't seen a single big shark. Uh, you can swim free as a bird because there's nothing left there to bite you. Now that's... They wouldn't bite you anyway, Charles. They wouldn't bite me anyway. <laughs> I love sharks. Now, the more sharks they have around me, the happier I am. But, um, well, thank God we know what makes you happy. No wonder you've been so depressed all uh, yeah, um, Charlie. But um, uh, it's... There's a lot of money in, in, in tourism, mm. ecotourism, uh, and it's money well spent. And I think uh, that will, the, the value of reefs in the future is going to go up and up and up and up and up enormously. And um, so one of the saviors of coral reefs is going to be their intrinsic value for ecotourists. Mm. And can I just say, last weekend we were walking in Sydney Harbour, which is not the cleanest, most pristine place on the planet, stopped for a swim and, you know, it wasn't the Great Barrier Reef, but a pair of goggles, just normal swimming goggles, a little bit of kelp on the seafloor, just some ordinary fish six inches long. That kind of communing with nature can be... I mean, as a daily experience, it's it's an incredible thing. Yeah, the Great Barrier Reef, I've snorkelled there once or twice. It's phenomenal. But just appreciating the everyday beauty, the cuttlefish that you've got in your backyard here, the you know the, the tiny little remnant bits of kelp and stuff are just incredible to, to be with. So I think we, we forget about how incredible that kind of everyday contact with nature well, I think, is. I think there's also power in film. Um, I have not witnessed the great aggregation yeah. of cuttlefish, but <laughs> fortunately, people have documented it and shared the view. And I love the advent of the, the way that you can access with these little films, yeah. little YouTube experiences, that with all the thousands of hours I've had exploring the oceans all over the world, I haven't seen these wonderful behaviors that occasionally you just luck upon with a camera and somebody's smart enough to know how to make the camera work and, and capture it and share it. And, and we are now blessed with this avalanche of new insight that can inspire you to want to go and see for yourself. Uh, I, there's so many places I have not been in the deep sea and all over the place. I mean, only about 10% of the ocean has ever been seen by anybody. And most of that by you. <laughs> no, I, I, so still time my, yet, my bucket list is far. really long. <laughs> <laughs> We've only got about five minutes, so just time for another one or two questions, yeah? Um, one of the problems of not eating any fish, of course, is that they are quite healthy for us. So can the panel please comment on um, two quick related things? One is, is it okay to just eat lots of fish oil? Do that, does that have environmental uh, implications? And secondly, what about the aquaculture industry? Is that all okay? Can that give us a break? 
or give the environment a break, or has that got issues with it as well? For aquaculture, I'll go to you, Bronwyn, if that's okay. And uh, fish oil, is anyone... Um, yep, great. We'll start with so in terms of aquaculture, it depends what sort of aquaculture it is as to and where it is, um, particularly... Uh, over in some of the Asian countries, they've got rid of a lot of the mangrove habitats and the other habitats that are critically important. Um, because they're part of the reproductive cycle. Where well, and they can have the juvenile fish and, and those sorts of things. Um, they've got rid of those to put in their aquaculture cages. So that's not necessarily beneficial. We also should probably be looking at what we're feeding a lot of our aquaculture species and whether that's sustainable from that perspective. So I think, I mean, what astounds me when I go shopping for fish in the supermarkets here in South Australia is how many different countries the fish can come from. It's often aquaculture species. Um, I think the last time I was there I counted eight different countries, including Australia, that um, some of the aquaculture or um, other wild fish had actually um, come from. So you should look at where it, where it comes from and think about um, what it's been fed on and whether it's healthy from that perspective. Because often fed on wild fish stock. It can be fed on wild fish stock, not always, mm. but can be. And Sylvia, the fish oil, and I'm sorry, that is the last question we have time for. I know, we'll make it really... Huh, so much to be covered here, but eating carnivores should not be uh, on your... <laughs> should not be a, something that you do. We don't, those animals that we raise, cows, chickens, pigs, whatever they are, are, are natural herbivores. Now, perversely, we feed them ground-up wild fish. We shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> if you ask the chickens and pigs and cows, they tell you, don't feed us fish. <laughs> but why not? Because there are a couple of things. We, the fish that we take from the sea are mostly carnivores, and they're mostly old. They're not like chickens that come to market within a year, or other farmed animals. They're, they're, there's a big bite that we take out of the ocean when we eat a tuna. To get a, a pound of chicken, it's like two pounds of plants. To get a pound of cow, 20 pounds of plants. To get a pound of tuna, think in terms of thousands of pounds of plants. At the end of a long and twisted food chain, where many creatures are invested in making the one top predator that we just thoughtlessly consume because it's just there and it's free, right? It really isn't. Mm. So the oil, the, the omega-3s that we, <laughs> we treasure, that we covet, are not made by the fish. You don't have to squeeze the life out of krill or fish to get the valuable oils. And so that's the response. Don't have fish oil, don't, for heaven's sakes, go for krill oil. For one thing, you're getting all the things that you don't want in you. The accumulated, oh, whatever it is, mercury, fire retardants, uh, pesticides, herbicides that go up the food chain along with these fish that are taken for the oil that gets squeezed out of them. You have alternatives, so go for it. And I'm so sorry, but we do have to leave it there. Jess, as polite as she looks, is whispering daggers at me oh behind <laughs> me here. Um, I'm just going to annoy the hell out of her, though, and ask each of our speakers just, just to give us what gives them hope in, in 10 seconds or less yep, without any physical violence so that we've got something, to, you know, just something that will give everyone here to... Yeah, we do have to call time. 
Use your vote. Uh, the, the Abbott government wanted to dump six million tonnes of mud on the Great Barrier Reef. That was turned around in three days because of voter backlash. <laughs> from, from I think you need to th do what Charlie said. Think about what you're going to buy in the shops when you're going shopping for fish and seafood and think about the environment out there when you're out there um, snorkelling, fishing, whatever you're doing. And Sylvia, if you can okay. keep it to 10 sure. seconds. Cause for hope, I'm looking at it. You are cause for hope. Thank you. Thank you very much. Charlie Varon, Bronwyn Galanders, Sylvia Earle.